Hello to everybody and welcome back to HPAC On The Air, the monthly podcast of HPAC Engineering Magazine. Um, our returning guest today is Elizabeth Beardsley, Senior Policy Counsel for the U.S. Green Building Council, where she served last month as UB USGBC's representative from the 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, more commonly known as COP27. So Liz, uh, thanks so much for joining us again here today on HPAC On The Air. Uh, we last spoke with you a year ago after COP26 in Scotland. Uh, so welcome back now after, uh, after your recent trip to Egypt. I'm wondering if you could please uh, just update our audience a bit on, on your biggest takeaways from this, uh, this latest global event. Thanks, Rob. Thanks so much for having me back. And hello to the audience. Uh, it was a really interesting trip, um, productive in many respects, and certainly uh, left me with you know a lot of mixed feelings. Um, first of all, in the negotiation side, the conference did result in an agreement that had uh, one sort of surprise. It included loss and damages, which has been a stickling, sticking point for quite a few years. Um, loss and damages refers to the idea that the developed countries, the wealthier nations that have really contributed most of the greenhouse gas emissions um, over history are you know, should help compensate the most vulnerable uh, lower wealth nations that are feeling often uh, more immediately the effects of climate change. And there's been concern about liability and what this opens up, but in the end, um, there were some really strong cases and it was quite important to those countries and it, the US and Europe um, agreed to include a commitment to a loss and damage fund. The details and amount of the fund are not determined, but this was still seen as a breakthrough. And I think one of the things that contributed to that is epitomized by the slogan from the Pakistan Pavilion, which says, said, what happens in Pakistan doesn't stay in Pakistan. And really what that is about is, you know, the floods and the, the human impact of climate change that is not happening in the future, it's happening now. And it speaks to the interconnectedness of all of our countries. And that's really what the COP is about. Um, and it just is impossible to ignore. So that was probably the, the most striking thing overall. You know, I think beyond that, we, we did have a disappointment on finance. Um, there was some progress with the potential trading mechanism, the, some of those details, but the overall flow of finance to climate mitigation and emissions reduction is not at the, the trillions each year that's needed or even like the billions that has been committed that's not being fulfilled yet. So there really wasn't significant progress there. And, you know, I think with that one, um, you know, special envoy John Kerry said, the only entity in the world that has the money to transition fast enough to keep us under 1.5 degrees is the private sector. So there's a lot of public money that's naturally part of the focus at COP is the nation to nation transfers, but there also needs to be significant public finance and investment in climate mitigation and adaptation. So there was a lot of discussion, but it didn't show up in the agreement in a tangible way. So I think that will continue to see 
um, in the next few COPs, certainly next year, uh, more on that. And then, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just gonna say, where is, where is COP next year? Is that? Uh, COP will be in Dubai at, in the uh, UAE next year. Uh, I was so, just gonna comment also, just when you talk about the interconnectedness, I'm struck by the fact that Pakistan basically was using a marketing international market was using a marketing phrase to coin for Las Vegas, right? So that's uh, what happens in Pakistan. I mean, that, that was just a yeah. play on words for and, right. and a show of uh, the global marketing power, I guess. Yes, that's true. That's a good point. And yeah. I think one other thing that uh, struck me is that another quote that I saw is was by a commentator at the IISD, which is a think tank, saying there's no point in going through what we just did if we engage in collective amnesia for the following year. And that's really about the, the pace of mitigation just has to improve. We know what we need to do and it just, we can't make this, you know, there's a part of COP is really important because it does bring with it many, many announcements, new commitments, reports, data, and, and there are some um, bright, points and all of that. Um, so it's important to have that milestone, but we can't uh, take the foot off the accelerator. I guess that's not a good analogy, but <laughs> we need to really go farther, faster, and uh, not wait, uh, not sort of now rest now that COP's over, but actually do more on the action and implementation side. Well, well, towards that, I think, and, and maybe toward uh... You know, if if it if it's slower to wait for uh, um, national governments to, to make movements, you had written earlier about uh, I guess in your first update from from COP27 about a month ago, you, you had noted that several uh, U.S. government officials from the state and municipal level were there, and I imagine hopefully that that's true in other countries as well. Um, but I think you even moderated a panel with a, with a group of them from from state and local um, municipalities and and, and other. Uh, um, uh, agencies. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and, and the significance you see of, of those multiple tiers of, uh, of, of participation. Yeah, that's really been a big shift in the COPs over the, the decades they've been occurring. So the first COP I was privileged to go to was Paris. And that year, there was an effort to bring together over 100 mayors from around the globe to say, we want a strong agreement. We, we need this. And as well as some uh, private sector uh, analog you know analogous groups really saying to the negotiators like make this happen and and that was powerful um, so there has been you know each year now some municipal and, and state officials coming and they really this year I felt the U.S. had a pretty big presence, especially uh, perhaps the federal government. Um, there was a congressional delegation, um, Senate delegation, um, as well as various officials and secretaries from the you know Biden administration, um, talking a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act and its benefits, um, and that brought a lot of newfound credibility to the U.S. bargaining position. So that was quite important. And I heard a lot about that from people I know from other countries uh, and multinational companies as well. So there's a large, a, a high level of awareness of the Inflation Reduction Act and questions about some of its programs. So that's very positive for the U.S. Um, but the state, the state and local really are all about action. So 
uh, generally they're not, they have plans, but they're not talking about plans. They're talking about stuff that's already underway. And I think that's what's really exciting about the, that level of government. Um, you know, they hear from their constituents, they're really closely connected. Lots of examples, but we were hosting a side event with Governor Holcomb from Indiana, um, who is talking about that state's transition to clean energy. And notably that that is a red state, but with a lot of fossil resources. But they saw that the economy is changing and clean energy is the future. And they made a conscious decision. They didn't want to be left behind. They wanted to invest and get a competitive advantage. So they're doing huge solar farms. They're investing in wind. They're working on hydrogen. They're working with their universities. They're investing in EV charging infrastructure with other governors in that bipartisan way. So that was really compelling. Uh, we heard from Mayor Simmons from Greenville, Mississippi, one of the Mississippi City River Cities and Towns Initiative mayors. And, you know, he talked about his residents who are living in the floodplain and they don't talk about climate change, but they talk about, you know, the storms and the floods and how they're personally impacted and their property is at risk. Um, they see that, you know, the river is in the drought and they can't actually do their normal levels of commerce with grain because um, the barges can't be filled to their capacity because of the water level. So, you know, these impacts are real, they're everywhere, and you know, we have solutions. He talked a lot about nature-based solutions, for example. Um, I had uh, the opportunity as well to talk with Governor Inslee from Washington, who's, you know, been a huge leader in buildings policy, and you know, probably, you know, six or more, like first, the first statewide building performance standard, the first state benchmarking requirement. Um, they were an early adopter of LEED for public buildings uh, a number of years ago. So, um, and now uh, scaling back and uh, requiring heat pumps for some buildings uh, in the latest building code in Washington. So, you know, when you talk about motivations, I mean, this really comes through when you talk to state and local officials and Governor Inslee talked about his grandchildren. He's like, I want them to have the same good life I had growing up and preserve that environment and, you know, that experience in nature for them. Okay. Well, thanks for, uh, um, for discussing that part of it. I, I guess I'm just kind of going back to uh, what you were talking about earlier with the, the, the kind of the push and pull of, of, of everything. Uh, I was looking at the, uh, USGBC president, uh, I guess Peter Templeton, uh, just uh, it was doing kind of a wrap-up statement on COP27, and he had said that uh, I think quote, uh, we applaud the inclusion of funding to help those countries most vulnerable to climate impacts, which you discussed earlier, um, but are distressed that the uh, uh, the Sharm El Sheikh implementation plan uh, didn't call for increased ambition and action, and uh, I think you've spoken to that a little bit earlier, but I don't know if you want to do any more any more specific uh, uh, amplification of, of those comments. Yeah, thanks, Rob. I mean, science is telling us that climate change is actually happening even faster than was predicted. And to me, it felt at this COP just palpable that we're running out of time to make these corrections that 
we can make and we know we need to make um, at a broad enough scale to preserve our quality of life. And that might sound dramatic, but I think it's true. Um, we're now relocating communities because of sea level rise. Um, probably everyone listening to this has some touch point, whether it's, you know, I'm here in Massachusetts, the pond I grew up on and skated on, that doesn't freeze anymore. You know, I'm trying to go skiing and every winter it's, you don't know what to expect. So, mm-hmm. um, so there's a lot of impacts and, and um, but what, uh, as far as the COP27 outcome, it was hoped that there would be a more specific target for peak emissions for the globe. And that's what did not show up in the agreement. And there was also uh, effort by some to put in a phase out of fossil fuel for the first time. That has never been in the COP agreement as of yet, and it didn't make it this time either. So those were two uh, hopes that did not get included um, in this agreement. On the other hand, there was an attempt by some or rumored attempt to take out the reference to 1.5 degrees as the target. So that didn't happen. That stayed in. It is in the Sharm El Sheikh implementation plan, which is the name of the cover decision. So it keeps that 1.5 target, but without those other pieces that strengthen it as an actual target. You know, and going into COP28 next year, you're asking that will be in the UAE, um, and it will be a year of the global stock take. So we'll be looking at where um, where the pledges stand, the nationally determined contributions, where countries are in terms of progress, and um, you know what the data shows as far as where we are in emissions. So it'll you know that will all be kind of new data and a new look at those. So hopefully that will set the stage for increased ambition and some progress on that um, at, at next year's COP. I was going to ask about it, uh, just about the, the idea of having the conferences annually. Do they, is that, I guess you could argue that it's almost an impediment in, in some ways to where you, when you, when you're done with one, you're already, you're already starting to prepare for the next one. But, but at the same time with, with stuff like this, it gives you another opportunity right after this one to, to, to try to, to fix the, the parts that maybe you, you feel needed to still be fixed or needed to be addressed that, that didn't come out of this one. Yeah. I mean, for the, the diplomats, they never stop, you know, they <laughs> are right on to continuing to work on things that they just announced. I mean, I've already had two calls with uh, officials from uh, the White House, State Department, Department of Energy on a couple initiatives that were announced and they're trying to look at, okay, what are our next steps? How do we start to implement this? Who are some of our partners? And that's the kind of discussions we were having. So, so it never, it never stops. And then mm-hmm. I'm sure in the negotiating team, you know, they're looking at how they can help align different countries uh, behind some of that increased ambition. I mean, that's what they have to do is sort of, a lot of stuff is pre-negotiated to some degree. Sometimes there's actually like formal like country blocks with different positions on a topic. So it's, mm-hmm. it's very interesting, that whole world. And they do have um, interim conferences during the year as well. I think there's a couple usually um, that just aren't as publicized. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I guess looking more specifically at just at, at what USGBC is doing and and the uh, and and the construction industry, I'm looking at to I guess to accelerate efforts toward decarbonization. As USGBC recently announced its own program to help drive uh, building green building at scale. I, I was wondering if you could talk to that a little bit, explain that uh, that effort to our audience a little bit more as well. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. I mean, we see that organizations should have clear actionable plans and roadmaps with targets for climate, equity, sustainability that show where that organization's going with respect to their real estate portfolios. You know, we're seeing more and more uh, environmental, social and governance, ESG commitments, net zero commitments, and various goals. Um, some organizations are doing that well, but others don't have plans to support those commitments. And, you know, there is a risk of um, watering down what those commitments really mean. Um, and that actually came about in, uh, was a topic at COP. There was a greenwashing report from the uh, this high-level group that uh, talked about the need and outlined specifics, uh, specific requirements that they see that should be associated with a net zero commitment. But so what we're doing is we're looking at how we can help organizations uh, establish these plans and roadmaps for to provide the basis for a verifiable set of actions that fit that organization um, so that they can show that they're able to achieve the targets in their plans. Um, and we've heard that from some in the market. They need tools to provide transparency and accountability to their commitments. So that's, that's our goal. Um, we'll be uh, trying to enable verifying these large scale changes over time uh, over as a so addition or a different approach from our you know single building or single site leadership standard. Mm -hmm. So trying to move everything, even you know existing buildings that perhaps have been left behind in focusing on leadership, we want to make sure you know all that looking through all of those buildings need to be on some path. So mm -hmm. this program will help engage owners on that journey. And the name of the program? I'm sorry if I. Or... I don't think we have a name yet. We're just okay. calling it the portfolio program. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and um, um, well, okay. That, that I mean that that's good. That uh, on the different efforts, would you be working with? Uh, are there other organizations like, uh, um, uh, Well Building? You know, we, we kind of almost. I guess it's almost a sister organization, right? The IWBI. Or um... we're, we're talking to lots of folks to. First of all, make sure we understand the need and the, you know, there is an ecosystem for corporate net zero commitments mm -hmm. and uh, for sort of the accounting, the bean counter sides, we want to fit in and support that um, with, you know, better data. But, you know, we, we bring the expertise, like, like your listeners in the engineering side, the building facilities expertise, really knowing like not just looking at spreadsheets, but how you actually do this and get those buildings to improve. So that's what we're focused on. Um, we have some new tools as well in our ARC platform. Um, for example, we have a new integration um, called energy efficiency analysis, and that helps understand energy change over time for building mm -hmm. managers um, and you know 
mechanical engineers and, and energy engineers. So it's a web serviced energy model. It analyzed abnormalities and some other things. So that might be something interesting to check out. Um, and then we have also in our pool our uh, advanced scoring and climate target single setting. So there's some things there um, that are helpful. And then also the climate risk tool. So trying to support companies wherever they are. Um, mm -hmm. And then with the new portfolio tool mm -hmm. or program, trying to just get, you know, help them to scale in an actionable way. Okay. And I know, I know ASHRAE has been, been accelerating efforts in that direction as well. I think they just had their first, just in October, their decarbonization uh, conference, I believe in, I think it was in Turkey, or actually this one might've been in Greece just, uh, just a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. um, I guess just finally, I, I know we don't have, all the time in the world, but uh, when when we last spoke, I guess uh, a year ago after COP26, I had asked you then if you were more optimistic about global sustainability and decarbonization efforts um, after that event than you were going into it. And uh, I guess I'll figure I'll ask you the same question again. It, it, you said then that that you you felt like younger generations were not going to let us off the hook. Um, so let me ask you the, the same question again this year. What, what's your optimism optimism level now? about all this after uh, after COP27? Yeah, it's a good question. And I had to think about that. So um, first of all, I'm, I'm glad that there are young people that are engaged and speaking out. And I think that's continued and that's really is powerful. And, you know, I, I, like I said, I think almost all the elected officials I spoke with, that was part of their, you know, underlying motivation is, is the, you know, the future generations and that sense of responsibility. Um, but I think overall, I'm going to steal a line from Karen Florini, who's a, a former um, assistant special envoy and say, I'm not an optimist or a pessimist, I'm an activist. Because we what we need right now is action. And in the building industry, we have the technology, we just need to mobilize it at a greater scale. Mm. So here in the US, we have um, programs in the IRA, and the hope is those will create momentum, build up a trained workforce, make high efficiency and electric heating, cooling the norm, not the exception, and really lead to that scaled change. Um, there's also not only the efficiency incentives, the home rebate program, um, federal purchasing to push for low carbon building materials, and support for codes and building performance standards. There's just a lot in there. Um, not again, not enough to do everything we need to do, but hopefully um, in combination with the, the push from the investment community to disclose and reduce climate financial risks, um, the prospect of a new SEC rule, like that's another pressure. And then, you know, the other hopeful sign, we, the Conservative Climate Caucus uh, came to COP again, this time in, in bigger numbers. You know, and we had that impact from the Republican Governor Holcomb, who is uh, really showing that this is about, you know, business and economy, and not only, you know, not only politics. So um, hopefully that, you know, the necessity and the inevitability of this transition that we're in will really, in combination with, you know, the IRA and investment pressures all together can push things to where we need to be. And then just quickly, you know, on the other side of the world, 
there's massive new construction happening in the next few decades. So here, if we can figure out how to bind carbon in those buildings, concrete, wood, like that could really be part of the solution. Um, but that will take coordination like from folks like the World Bank, multinational development banks, governments, industry, make that happen. But it, it could be a real, real benefit. So I'm, I guess cautiously optimistic, activistic. <laughs> Well, that's very good. And actually, just the last few months, I've driven, I'm outside of Chicago and had to drive to a couple events in Indianapolis. And on the drive, I've, I've been struck, well, every time I drive that direction, I'm struck by the uh, uh, the giant wind farms that I pass uh, on the highway there. And uh, mm -hmm. and that is right in Indiana, as you say. So maybe, maybe they will lead us in, in yep. many ways. But uh, well, Liz, thanks again so much uh, for being with us. Uh, today um, and for your first-hand insights from this uh, this uh, annual global event. Uh, perhaps we'll talk in a year or, or sooner. Um, much more to come on that, I'm sure. Um, I'd like to wish everybody, uh, 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 to all our HPAC on the Air listeners, uh, um, uh, thanks for, for tuning in. And for more episodes, please visit our, our podcast archives, hpac.com, and feel free to comment there and or contact me with uh, suggestions for future podcasts. But till next time, please, everyone take care and have a safe and wonderful holiday season. And thanks again uh, to, to you, Liz, for, for being with us today. Thank you so much, Rob. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Take care.